Difference makers all face the same question. How can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change? Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Hi, welcome. Uh, I'm Richard Ingleton. I am the cuckoo in the podcast nest because Liam isn't here so I've just shoved him out and I'm going to sit here and, and Kelvin over to you to introduce yourself. Good, and, uh, thank you very much for stepping in. Um, I think you've uh, you've done incredibly well so far on some of the previous podcasts so it'd be good to have you on board. Yeah it's nice for cuckoos to get good press. Nice for cuckoos so cuckoos appreciate press, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Richard is, um, is a transformational business leader but he's also a fantastic artist. Um, started training as an artist he's doing you're up in an Italian in in, uh, in, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Yeah, Scotland. Yeah, yeah, so I've been doing that for a couple of years since I stopped the full time thing, um, which makes a change from you know I ran a multinational marketing agency, so I was in two or three different countries every week, and uh, now I don't have to do so much of that. Brilliant. So uh, that's good. Well, we're lucky, Richard. We've got another amazing person here today, and yes. um, it's Yolanda Barnes. Uh, Yolanda is um, professor at uh, at the Bartlett Real Estate um, School and uh, is also chair of the new Bartlett Real Estate Institute. But what's really cool about Yolanda is her description of her job. She says, my job is thinking things about real estate that most people in the industry aren't thinking yet. I think that's really, really good. So welcome Yolanda and really good to have you on board. Oh, thank you. It's great to, great to be here. I'll tell you what, we, we're gonna just, go through some sort of ideas you you've said a couple of things in the recent past that have sort of struck home to me and i've used you quite often as my uh, stalking horse i suppose is, is probably the best way of looking at it um to try and open doors to different thinking and i think you've been thinking definitely thinking outside the mainstream of your industry and I, I, it always astounded me that i couldn't find similar people to you that you you, you almost seemed like a lone wolf when it came to saying some of the things you were saying so um we know we're on this permanent housing crisis and you spent the past 30 years looking at housing research worldwide. Um, you've looked at uh, residential markets, regeneration, land and mixed use um, neighborhoods. And I know you talked quite often at, uh, at conferences, particularly with the so-called urbanists, which um, I put myself in that sort of camp. So um, how, did you, how did you get on board this sort of trade? How did, how did you start this kind of thinking? <laughs> yes, how was I a voice in the wilderness for so long? Um, well, I suppose my, my background's in geography, what I'm inspired by. Um, well, I, sp I spent my uh, sort of pre-university years thinking I was going to be an artist. Um, ah. And uh, so I've, I've always been, as it were, inspired by environment and landscape and so on. Uh, and I, I suppose what we'd call now place. Um so uh, with an, an interest in geography and uh, and uh, my degree in, in geography, I, I've always um, been thinking. I, th I think one of the great things geography gives you is the ability to think very holistically about things. You know, the, yeah. the, 
the common denominator is spatial sort of distribution or, or, or spatial phenomenon, and there's there's a huge amount of phenomena that can go into um, space, as it were. So becoming um, an industry researcher uh, inside of that, I suppose, has always had me asking a very wide range of questions, uh, perhaps for to use an overused phrase, taking a more holistic view than a lot of people yeah. trained specifically in one of the branches of um, the environment, you know, whether it be architecture or surveying or uh, construction or whatever. So I've ha had both the curse and the privilege of seeing things from, as it were, a wider perspective. Um, I think urbanism comes naturally, partly for that geography background, but also, even if you're focused on real estate value, it's quite apparent that value is derived, and I mean value in its broadest sense here, is derived from place factors, not building factors. Yeah. By that, I mean, you know, uh, it, it is. The estate agents, I'm afraid, are right. It is location, location, location. Um, that that it gives properties value. It's it, it's the quality uh, position and all those other sort of things that go with a particular place. So, Yolanda, if you were, if you as a student of geography um, and as somebody who's inspired by space, um, and maybe that's your driving motive, whereas the builders, I assume, are mainly inspired by profit. I mean, they're shareholder owned, so they probably have to be. Did, did that, would that? create conflict and if, if so can you give us kind of the example of a sort of conflict it might have created i'm not sure it creates conflict necessarily it, it creates great uh fascination for me the relationship uh between uh the economics of places and buildings if you like and the quality of what we actually get so so by that, I, 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 let me ex explain a bit further. I think that um, form, our built environment form, has been given not by function, as the modernists would have us believe, but by finance. Form follows finance. Yeah. And I think that the whole sort of real estate industry um, and even good sort of construction development industry has been very highly and very oddly uh, sort of highly financialized over the last sort of 60, 70 years. The late 20th century was an extremely weird time in economic history, uh, largely because of the post-war great inflation and uh, what, what was happening to interest rates and a whole host of other things. And that, that gave us such peculiar conditions that favoured short-termism uh, when interest rates are high, no payback periods are short, um, gave us automatic asset price inflation since the 1990s. Um, it gave us inflationary rents uh, you know, that, that went up in line with inflation. So, so either way, <laughs> uh, property values increased. So it was actually very difficult not to make money in, in real estate over that time. And what was favoured, um, because the baby boomers were investing in pension funds and insurance companies and the like over that period, it meant that capital had to be deployed in large lumps for capital gain. 
the the name of the game was grow the pension funds, mm. grow, uh, grow grow the investments, uh, and you know that was as much a demographic, um, so it's sort of macroeconomic sort of uh, force as anything else. But it gave us a very peculiar type of real estate, because the money was going into big boxes, big blocks on big grids, um, automobile driven, and sort of uh, cityscapes and 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 urbanism. And form followed that finance. Um, what and, did that do to function then? Well, uh, function is a, is a bit of a <laughs> it, it's it's a bit of a a red herring. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I think for well, unless unless you think that first and foremost, the function of a big office building with the name of the big financial institution at the top of it is to. Um, create an investment return if if the function of that building is capital growth then actually it doesn't matter what its function is and at the extreme it doesn't actually matter if it's occupied or not so long as the estimated rental value on a building can be entered into an annual valuation and so long as the capital value uh resulting from that valuation keeps going up the uh the big investors were doing their job. They were growing the fund. The asset was growing in value. It actually didn't have to function socially and certainly not sort of uh, environmentally. Um, it just had to had to function for uh, that economic purpose. I think, you know, I suppose just looking at, at what you said some time back, um, by 2025, I thought, I think you said 75% of the marketplace will be the millennials. I think it was the sort of figure. I don't know if I got those numbers right, but words to that effect. And you also said the millennials are not looking to live in the places that their parents lived in or work in the places that their parents worked in. And in mm-hmm. fact, in many ways, they were looking for messy urban neighborhoods, which is sort of contradicts this idea of the bright, neat, shiny, branded box. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's so much to say here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um, I I think I probably said that pre-COVID and I think COVID has only served as a a kind of of proof, (laughs) uh, further proof of that. So there there are several things at play here. One is the simple demographics of ageing population and um, relative decline uh, in growth and workforce, which means there's a huge... um, war for talent uh, out there, which means that employers are having to compete for uh, talented workers, and they're doing so with the type of environment they're offering them. So the millennial and Gen Z uh, workers need to be attracted to not so much um, a company necessarily, not to the name at the top of that big building, but they want to work where it's going to be a good place to work for all sorts of well-being and other uh, other reasons, um, not not just remuneration. So, placemaking, if you like, has become part of that uh, workplace phenomena. And then, as far as living is concerned, you know the the huge sort of social experiment we all went through in lockdown really revealed to us some of the sorts of places and homes and neighbourhoods that just didn't work. And they tended to be the neighbourhoods that we've been building over the last uh, 60 or 70 years. Possibly generations. Big, shiny blocks. Yeah. Uh, and 
what we all realise, not just the millennials or Gen Z, is that we need sort of good, high quality outside space, good amenities, neighbourhood, walkable, cyclable, all the rest of it. And um, I think it's really put into focus, uh, if you like, that the nature of demand has changed and we can't just keep turning out these sort of money-making machines, uh, the big boxes on big grids, uh, and that we have to pay attention to adding value to the neighbourhood. So that's a kind of demand-side phenomenon. And then at the same time, uh, I was talking earlier about the sort of the big pension funds and insurance companies, the big investors' aim was to grow capital during the late 20th century. The name of the game now is to pay the pensioners because, again, that demographic change has meant that there are now more pensioners. So all the emphasis is now on income. How much income can an investment generate? Now, that's a completely different proposition to growing capital in big boxes and actually making a place work, making people actually want to be there and uh, having people pay competitive rents for the best places means you really have to pay attention to placemaking. It's an investment, a kind of economic imperative, if you like, um, as well as probably a pretty good idea socially and environmentally. And so we've got all these forces coming together at once. Yeah, and at the same time, in most Western, well, most economies right now, there is a. Uh, it's hard to get hold of capital for stuff that doesn't give a short. So, so I, what what you said makes sense, but it's actually quite hard to get hold of capital to make those neighbourhood investments. I would imagine, as it is in any business investment right now, you can get the core investment. It's very hard to get money for. The, the sort of value adding activity. So are you seeing the finance model support that need to develop place beyond the home or the office or, or not? Um, that's a very complicated question to which the answer is both yes and no. Mm. Uh, theoretically, the money wants long term income streams. Yeah. Uh, and there are some branches of the investing world, as it were, that have as it were, recognise this. And actually, quite a, uh, I'm trying to think, more than a decade ago, um, you could raise quite a lot of capital or uh, social housing providers could raise quite a lot of capital at very uh, low interest rates. Uh, in the bond market, they could provide these long-term stable income streams, uh, which were the result of... Um, sort of mass housing, uh, ownership and renting. Uh, and I think that model actually has application at a much broader, uh, in a much broader range of situations in, in, in real estate. So I think I think if, if you think of real estate becoming a, an income producing uh, proposition, then that sort of finance um, kind of, low coupon, uh, high volume uh, sort of capital should be available and and potentially is. There's quite a lot of money also pointed at at residential uh, real estate at the moment. Uh, So I don't think the quantity of capital available is a problem. I think the problem lies in actually, if you like, trans, translating it, trans transmogrifying it into um the the sort of returns that 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 people people now want and i think that's particularly challenging to an industry a real estate industry um that 
where conventions are completely different, where the emphasis has been so much on capital growth and indeed on debt finance um, in the past. Uh, where there's a distinction and a, 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 you know there are too many distinctions I often talk about you know too many silos in real estate but there's a, a big distinction between uh, developing uh, property owning and letting property and if you like managing property the those three things need to be very much more closely uh, integrated uh, because that's where the value is. It's it's in the sort of ongoing stewardship of land, if you like, where value is derived, and particularly those value streams are uh, derived, those, those income streams are derived. And I was actually talking to um, a building manager, a very interesting company, uh, used to be called Student Hotel, and now I think brand themselves the hub. And I was talking to the, uh, the manager of one of these buildings, which is a mixed-use hotel, co-working space and student accommodation mm. uh, with a lot of uh, multi-use, uh, actively managed space in between. And she was saying that her whole emphasis was on um, income generation, that it was all about revenue, you know, use, maximising the use of space for revenue. And the result of that... Um, was great. I mean, it was a, it was a really nice place to stay as a hotel. There were students living there. You felt it was much more of a home. You know, it was it was a real case of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, if you like. And this hypermixity, this active management of place, is absolutely key to value real estate value going forward, in my view. But that means you've got to start valuing the people. You've got to, you've got to start valuing your managers because their capability of extracting social, environmental, and indeed um, monetary and economic value from um, your asset is a very key piece of the puzzle. It's, it's, this is a big deal for the developers, right? So they're used to building yeah. these, you know, these grids with boxes on them, and now they're all of a sudden having to create um, uh, places. They're used to funding in a certain way and for a certain return. It's now a totally different way and a totally different return. They're used to sort of investing, selling and getting out and doing something else. Now they have to stay to build and maintain the pace. But I mean, that's, that's you know, I've run businesses. That's a lot of change um, for an industry, let alone, you know, one particular business within it. So so are they coping? Are they getting there? Is it working? Give me an example of where this is. <laughs> you know, obviously there's a new town being built that does does all of this or a new neighbourhood being built that does all of this or... A, is the one? Uh, oh gosh, um, this this often strikes me as somewhat counterintuitive, but the best examples I know um, are probably where there is a single that were self interested landlord, uh, long term certainly, mm. and uh, the the one of the most obvious things that that springs to my mind, unfashionable though it may be to say so, is Poundbury in Dorset. Mm. Yeah. This is a case where, um, and I really do want to leave the kind of the, the building style to one side, but <laughs> you know, a, a kind of socially integrated place that 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 provides um, large amount actually of of social, um, not even affordable, but it, it, but both social and affordable housing, as well as uh, a very wide range of open market um, owner occupied stuff, but also. Um, workplaces including factories um 
and retail and a whole host of other sort of accommodation in a very traditional sort of town-like um, new settlement. What does it take to do that? Well, it seems you have to uh, be a, a crown prince and, and now king to, you know, with that kind of long-term control over a large piece of land and uh, perhaps some influence to be able to do it. I think to some extent the um, landed estates, I mean, the active stewardship of the Grosvenor estate has always fascinated me and yeah. what's done there. Um, and there, there are many other examples. I think that the, the problem for the, the modern industry, if you like, is actually recreating that sort of a entity uh, where there is, there is a genuine sort of long-term um, I keep coming back to these sort of three corners of sustainability, social, environmental, and economic value imperative. Uh, it means there may need to be an individual with the drive and vision to 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 do it. I think that that very often is a factor in these sort of new places. Yeah, and I think uh, everyone, but, seems to, everyone, everyone seems to follow everyone. That's the that's the other thing that happens in the industry. As we do whatever else does. <laughs> I know we were we were involved in Birmingham on what's called the big city plan in Birmingham, and um, there was a lot of one and two bed investment apartments that had been built in the city centre, largely occupied by yuppies, young lawyers, young uh, professionals, um, who were faced with a big decision: where did they go next when they start having families? You know, mm. and their 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 choices were almost to go completely outside boundaries of the of the city. Mm. Um, and in fact, when we spoke to the development market, they all said, well, there's only really a, a market for one or two bedroom apartments in this area. So we did a second review where we did a bit of analysis with, um, with people locally and found there was an incredible demand for the large townhouse, the large, large family townhouse sitting on say a garden square. Um, uh, a lot of big, uh, Pakistani families, we had large families who actually had money to invest as well in these sort of places. And yet the market didn't see this at all. It never saw that its next step up opportunity was to take those yuppies to the idea of fantastic urban living. Yeah. It's, it's almost what's missing in our entire spectrum. I think um, Dan Paralek uh, refers to as the missing middle. We've actually lost that sight of, lost the sight of that, of the fine grain mixed use building that takes on a wide variety of different uses. Yes, I think what you're talking about here is kind of uh, development research 101, which is um, distinguishing between take up, that is what people have had to buy because that's all that's, that's there, that's available. and what I call latent demand, which is actually what yeah. people want if it were available. Yeah. Uh, and they're two very, very different things. And I think the industry keeps navel gazing and researching itself, um, particularly new build, house builders, they t um, when they research sort of property markets, property demand, they were very often just looking at people who bought new build property, kind of forgetting that 80% of the po population actually don't want a new <laughs> newly built house. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's uh, we, we, we forget that the new build development market in housing, certainly in the UK, um, you know, is a niche market. Yeah. We, yeah. we talk about it as if it's a mass market. We talk about mass house builders, but they, uh, it only ever appeals to um, about 10% uh, yeah. of all transactions, you know. Yeah. 
most of the markets in secondhand housing and, and goodness knows what we'd want uh, you know, what we'd buy if we it was actually available it's a bit like steve jobs and you know, he didn't ask people if they wanted an I, ipad or an iphone you know he invented it yeah. <laughs> um, that, that that and what what we're doing is trying to ask the population as it were to invent the iphone without having any idea <laughs> what it might look like yeah um, i i i loved your sort of because uh, I've, I've never heard it before this idea that finance created the form that we 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 saw in the late 20th early 21st century and now you're saying well actually there's still finance is going to drive but maybe it's going to drive function so if i was to give you a billion dollars and a big chunk of land maybe going back to the poundbury example you know would you go to the builders of today and have them commission do the how would you how would you spend that money to create something that's got great function that has great value that would deliver a sustainable income for I'm basically doing a pitch for you for the investment funds for the pension I'm saying here's a lady who can take a billion dollars and build something that's going to give you a 10% return on investment for the next 10 years through income how, how would you do that um, that's going to get spent right in the UK well I'd start I'd start by designing the right business model what I call the, the right the right the right business model so unfortunately you you wouldn't employ um people with their existing skills to do that you'd you'd have to find people who and funnily enough you might well find them in the social housing sector who understand um the value of as it were whole place incomes yeah um i'd I'd definitely be interested in people who have started to explore hypermixity and how to create um whole place incomes from mixed use rather than just residential i think that's that would be the the kind of uh the full uh a, prob- a problem with the purely going to the social housing sector. So actually you're drawing in skills that aren't necessarily to do with traditional real estate at all. That's the first first thing. Yeah. And then um, the, the, the second thing I might I would be one, worried about, as I think most people are, is, uh, as it were, future-proofing. Obsolescence and depreciation are something that we, for a whole host of technical reasons, really didn't think about at all. Uh, in the late 20th century, and they're rearing their heads now. And the, the, there's um, the whole issue of uh, just, for example, an environmental threat of sea level rise. That is actively going to put assets underwater yeah. uh, in future. And and so we, we've got to think about that. I, I often, I, when I'm giving talks, I often use uh, film titles as conclusions. And one of my favourites is Everything Everywhere All at Once. <laughs> uh, to really to really make things work now you have to be thinking about everything everywhere all at once it, it's got to be a holistic approach so you can't you can't just concentrate on making your buildings uh, you know super green by putting solar panels on the roof and so forth and especially if those roofs are going to be uh you know in a in a lake uh if, if sea levels rise or whatever um and and you can't just concentrate on sort of social impact without thinking about sort of what the you know hard financial returns are going to be. So you have to design a business model that acknowledges um, that there's going to be a lot of change in the future that we can't begin to predict. You know, yeah. ChatGPT, you know, AI is or that form of AI is is only a year, year just over a year old now. Um, there are going to be things like that that come along and derail us and. And change things. Um, so, what do we have to concentrate on? Well, in my view, and this is one of the great things about real estate, it's in the end about the interaction of people and land. Mm. Yep. And human beings uh, aren't suddenly going to get twice as tall, or um, maybe we're getting twice as wide quite rapidly. But that—that's that, <laughs> another issue. Um, 
but you know fundamentally we're not going to change shape and um you know there's a, there's a basic if you like anthropology of human beings that means our interactions with with land are going to be pretty much the same as they were at the start of the very first cities you know mm-hmm. 11,000 years ago jericho had its roots um in a hunter gatherer uh civilization and what people were doing in that sort of temporary city on the banks of the jordan uh all those um, centuries millennia ago was pretty much the same as people do in cities now uh we were feasting and meeting people and getting married and trading and teaching each other and you know all those things there's there's a long long list of, of things that go on in cities and if if we concentrate on how we provide the environment for them. And I think the um uh you know one thing that always strikes me across through millennia, across continents, human beings build streets. Uh that's our that's our natural habitat. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite simple buildings on streets and it's the streets where things happen. Um so I would want to build long life, loose fit, simple buildings that can be adapted and readapted and adapted again and repurposed and redone um very easily but fundamentally they'd address the street where human beings are going to be even if they've got their virtual headsets i think uh, by the way I, i'm not sure we will all exist in the metaverse but you know we may have to uh, implement augmented reality at a much greater scale goodness no you know there are, there are all kinds of things that might happen electronically human yeah. beings will still be in the streets yeah, listening to you, I'm sort of listening to what you're saying. I think, well, actually, there's we we have kind of in the UK and in Europe and in the city, certainly in the UK, lots of cities that kind of sound like that. You know, they are great places to live. They do all the things that you're talking about. So, to what extent are you talking about this? I'm still giving you this billion dollars. Is you might need a bit more if you're building cities. But to what extent are you thinking about this in terms of working within our existing cities, expanding our existing cities, or building new ones? Because in countries like UK or say Japan, there's not a lot of space in, in other countries, there's a bit more space to build in. So would you would you be spending this money adapting the cities we've got to be something yeah. bigger or cooler? Yeah, you wouldn't just build a new city in the middle of... Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, this is controversial. I think there's plenty of land. I think we've just covered it in tarmac and given it cars. I mean, if, right. if, you, if you just allowed 10% of the population who lived in pebble-dash housing yeah. to put an extra house on their property... Yeah. Okay, you'd meet London's housing demand quite, quite quickly. That's a good But I'm, ju- I'm just looking at... We never, we never look at those sort of numbers. Yeah. We, just look at, we get caught in the headlight of big numbers, don't we? It's a classic thing. So mm-hmm. We have a million houses to build. Let's find a site for a million houses. Yeah. It's Keir Starmer announcing uh, uh, we're going to build two new towns. And we were incredibly unsuccessful at building new towns. We're not yeah. good at big infrastructure. No, we're not, but but I, I think the problem is that those, we've proved through those, those, those times. I mean, when you mentioned about going back to Jericho days, the idea is that very little has changed. The relationship of, the, of, of uh, the building to the street, the way in which people occupy those buildings, the way in which people adapt those buildings to their needs, has always been a fundamental factor in cities adapting um, to, to, to their needs over time. The trouble is that we've, and we probably, we probably started talking about this right in the beginning, is that we mentioned the past three generations we haven't built a decent new urban neighborhood anywhere in the world. Now you might say- There are a few exceptions, but yes, by and large. I'll say, I'll probably say 
Hanbury, I'd put in the in the sort of the eighty percent getting there sort of category, but it's still very much a top-down driven model. And I agree, it get, you get, we get caught up in the historical stuff. We also get caught up in the fact that it's a single landowner. Well, actually, there's some fantastic examples of single landowners who manage bits of the city incredibly well. In fact, most of our fine-grained mixed-use areas are in single ownership: the Soho's, the Covent Gardens, the the Marlebones, um, You know, and uh, these are the people who almost treat the, they almost like the husbandry of property. Mm. They're constantly growing. I mean, someone told me the other day that the largest hospital in the world is in Marleybone. If you look at the number of beds that exist in Harley Street, oh, yeah. it's a combination yeah. of schools. It's the largest number of, so it's basically as a hospital. With in a street. street in a street, in a street. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's yeah. probably got the best skill sets in the world. And it's been curated like that over time. Someone's yeah. taken yeah. that and grown that point over time. And they've done incredibly well at doing it. Yeah. But you go back to, um, you know, what happened? And, and you, you said something about the relationship of the building to the street. Well, along came, you know, post-war planning, where the two main drivers were probably the modern city movement and the garden city movement. And the one was effectively um, get out of the city, move to the, the countryside. And I know Ebenezer Howard gets a bad, gets bad press, but there is a, the fact is that it, it was the propagator of, of suburbia. You know, it, was, it, came, it came at a time. But the modern city movement was effectively about killing the street you know, and yeah. the stuff that we, that I've been working on in the past 30 or 40 years has been failed housing estates. Yeah. And been well, Corbusier called the, um, the cafes um, in Paris, the, the, the fungus that fungus, eats up yeah. the sidewalk, sidewalks. But you use that example in your talk. I remember that. That's for you. We yeah. want that fungus. That fungus is absolutely essential. Yeah, we love the fungus. That's it. Human beings actually don't live like machines. No, so to go back to the uh, the billion pound sort of question, uh, whether it's in let, let's let's pretend I'm in LA, which has to be sort of a very good example of the big block, big grid, yeah. single big building sort of car dominated city. Um, what you do is you go back. The great, I mean, the great thing, the only uh, good thing about LA is is the grid. But you go back to the big grids and you subdivide them into yeah. proper neighbourhoods. I'm green. You you kind of uh, t it's, instead of the big building in the middle, um, it, you actually sort of reintroduce streets, uh, and you could do that on a, almost on a block by block basis. And I think that the principle holds true. I don't know, e even on the outskirts of London. You know, you've got some pretty awful, great big, obsolete or becoming obsolete office buildings, um, which uh, you know, take up huge amounts of land, um, not for the building themselves, but for everything that kind of goes goes on around it. And I think I think there's a, you know there's plenty of opportunity to repurpose those blocks as. When you say street, and you, I think, Kelvin, you said fine grain, or you both said fine grain. Yeah. I know when you're saying that, there's a particular image of a thing you've got in your mind. I'm just imagining a street with the houses in it. So just be a bit more specific about what you mean when you say a street or fine grain. I think fine grain means narrow frontage buildings with doors onto the street. Right. Be the way I describe it. Right. Which okay. is so you are talking about a literal sort of traditional street, as I would imagine it as yeah. well. And okay. I, I don't think, I honestly don't think, certainly the research I did, going back to um, ancient Chinese times, Indian times, uh, yep. the early stuff that happened in South America around planned cities, even up to Victorian times. You know, Victorian housing is 200 years old now. Mm. And all of us have spent some part of our life in a Victorian house. Yeah. And they've served us incredibly well. Mm. You know, the question is, 
why don't we see it? I mean, is it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to um, romanticize poverty or uh, lack of sanitation or anything, but you can learn an awful lot from uh, shanty towns and squatter settlements and informal settlements. And it's really striking, whether you're in a favela in Brazil or Davi, Mumbai, the, the streets have, have a great deal in common. And, uh, I think Yang Gell has written quite a lot about the kind of environments that people feel comfortable in. So streets are a certain width, a width where you can recognise. You, you don't feel uncomfortably close to somebody yeah. uh, pushing by, as but it were. Comfortably but equally, you recognise their face. And, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. If you go back, and we found we found these sort of golden rules that existed. Do you know, in most civilizations, people came down to subdividing to the one eighth of an acre plot. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of knowledge. Yeah. Ultimately, we all came, and it probably it might have to do with the scale of the human body. It might be the scale of the the family, but that pattern exists, and the width the width of the frontage exists in so many settlements going back in history. Yeah, going back to the first grid, you know, the the Greek Miletus um, grid, subdivisions were quite constant, and we've lost sight of that. Yeah. Mayfair is fantastic because it uses that. Yeah. Mayfair uses that sub subdivision uh, of the grid. That's uh, Inigo Jones did that. You know? I mean, I'm quite curious because you know I have been to the favelas in, in in Brazil and I've been to the, the slums in well all around India and. Um, and I'm interested in this idea of what we can learn from this. I'd like a bit more on that, if that's okay, because I've been to them and they are organically created, but they serve actually literally every need of the people in that. Yeah. They get educated yeah. there, they get nursed there, they yeah. get parented there, they get to play there. Everything is contained because they, they can't leave the slum or the favela. It's too, they just can't get, they can't. So they live there. So they've created this environment organically. And when you said that bit about, the things we can learn from all of a sudden you think yeah well this was organically created to meet every human need it, it may not be a place mm -hmm. we want to live because as you said there's no not great sanitation and none none of the things of the standard we would expect in the west but still it is a design that's been created at the minimum possible possible cost to to serve these people so what what if you were to say these are the things that i could learn from how to create well the interesting thing is that when you give these people land rights one way or another, they start putting in the uh, infrastructure, the sanitation, the electricity and everything else. And there's quite a good documentation of how that goes on. And let's face it, I mean, if you look at, I don't know, the shambles in York, um, that <laughs> once looked very like Darby Mumbai, I suspect. <laughs> You've got right. the same principles there. You know, it once was, uh, for want of a better word, a sh shantytown, you know, um, yeah. and many medieval places were, were like that. That doesn't mean they can't become... Uh, uh, much safer and uh, sanitized and everything everything else and it doesn't mean they can't have services uh, but we've completely lost that form there's no mechanism in the sort of modern real estate um, toolkit to to reproduce them except as pastiche or, or risking looking like uh, pastiche we don't really know how to build a modern version of of those good places um with notable exception and actually uh, one of the things that the, the owners of the big boxes keeps i think struggling to kind of recreate you were talking about a hospital you know the, yeah. the whole street being a hospital well your usual huge enormous hospital yeah. tries to recreate the street you know there are acres of like corridors hospital street um, yeah yeah exactly and and, it has uh, a bookshop on it Google. and it has a Coffee bar on it, and it has other things. Yeah. So. I mean, every every day Google bus people out of San Francisco where they actually want want to be in you know in that exciting city to a campus in Silicon Valley where they've tried to recreate the characteristics of the city with mm. 
cafes, the social spaces, the environment and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we, you know, why, why we hamstring ourselves, why we, why we tie ourselves up in knots trying to <laughs> recreate something new when actually all we have to do is, this is my second uh, uh, film, to go back to the future. <laughs> Mm. You know, there are there are some basic fundamental sort of anthropological things to learn about cities that we can reproduce into the future. Yeah. So last question for you. So I, I'm I really because this is all new to me. I'm no expert in this space at all. So I'm just listening and learning. But this idea that we've got plenty of space and particularly plenty of space in the cities if we allow this sort of organic development to occur and encourage it. That that's a quite inspiring idea and it feels very solvable, particularly. If, if you build these in cities that aren't going to suffer from rising sea levels or, you know, long-term consequences, or maybe especially in those places, I don't know. So if you were the government of the day and you had to put some policies in place to encourage this, to make this happen, you're still getting a billion dollars. Don't worry about that. That's coming. But if you had to then put some policies in place to encourage this, what, what, what would be your top two or three? What needs to happen for this organic stuff we've talked about in the favelas or the, to happen in our big modern cities? Well, if if you want if you want that, then what has to happen is we have to stop being prescriptive yeah. in that policy. It we have to move from um, constraints and prescriptive um, top down uh, planning to a framework that enables these things to happen. Now that's much much more difficult for traditional policymakers to do. Mm. but um we have to be driven by by purpose rather than process if you like yeah. and i think i think this is um you know the the crazy search for the single silver bullet that's going to solve everything has to stop um, we've already run into a complete disaster with modern methods of construction where it was lighted on as, as a way of solving everything from the housing crisis to you know, environmental uh, energy and other considerations. And actually um, focusing just on that as a solution has, has been pretty disastrous to the, the people who've tried to set up sort of factories and what, what have you. Um, that is a case of how policy just cannot um, take into account all the many, many Mm. myriad of factors it can't take take care of everything everywhere all at once so, so i'm almost assuming, people do that. yeah so i'm always assuming this in my mind is that your policy would be that we wouldn't have a policy and what you <laughs> would do would be is to is to allow the millions of people that live in our cities to invest in the land and the space around them to make it a better place for them and therefore everybody else yeah i yeah. think i think we need to like remember that. that what real estate's about and that it's actually about land and <laughs> ultimately you know if you if you let communities own and control the land um they're probably going to do what's best in the longer longer term yeah yeah i'm actually fascinated uh, this idea of um john turner saying that informal settlements are just cities in progress this idea of starting and we always find it difficult as as a young say as, as a young person getting on the housing ladder now i can remember my first house was a converted double garage Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, we, but we're not allowed to do that. Planning system prevents it. It's obsession with neatness. It's obsession with commanding and controlling every single outcome. And that's the thing that we have to kind of recognize is that we're not going to win with this rigid top-down approach that we've used for three generations. 
And as I said, I think you, you, you probably hinted that you might find some other great urban neighbourhoods. Um, I talk about new as well. Uh, there's a lots of great old urban neighbourhoods that have been regenerated incredibly well, the Williamsburgs or the Shoreditches. Or, um, mm. To find examples of where we've done it. And therefore, the planning system must look at itself quite carefully. I'm interested in two things. You mentioned the relationship between people and place. I'm interested in the third one between people, place and politics this whole thing, because the real question is, what do we tell government? And you, you and I have probably been in sort of the corridors of power trying to talk to people about some of these things, and they really don't have a clue. I mean, I was astounded to, a couple of years ago to go into a room with a whole bunch of so-called housing people to realize that the depth of thinking was the thickness of a piece of paper. Was so, there was so little idea. In fact, all they wanted to do was to announce more numbers. Give us some numbers yeah. we can announce. Yeah. That's the problem is we see housing. If we see housing constantly as a numbers game and not as a neighborhood building game, yep. we need to change. that's where we need to change the whole game plan here. Mm. Yes. Um, we, sh we should stop thinking of residential property or housing as being just housing units. Yep. It's so Because a home is so much more. Absolutely. Uh, than just the four walls and the roof. It's it's what happens when you step outside your front door as much as what, what happens inside it. We've and, had, yeah, sorry. Yeah, just, yeah, sorry, I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> carry on. No, it's interesting. We've had a couple of um, guests on board who are talking about rebuilding social fabric. In fact, Seth Kaplan was on board recently. He wrote a book called Fragile Neighbourhoods. Mm. And um, Seth actually said, that the single biggest challenge we have is not climate challenge, it's actually building social fabric. Otherwise, what are we doing it for? Yes. If we can get an engaged, activated, and socially responsible community, we will have a far better chance of dealing with some of these very big, wicked problems out there. But it has yeah. to start from that bottom. It can't yeah. start from someone writing a whole lot of policies in some sort of smoky office somewhere. In. Well, quite. If I think, therefore, it's got to be about the way we think about the built environment in our neighbourhoods and um, the old sort of highly financialized view of real estate can't work. And if we start to acknowledge that value is derived from the interaction of land or environment, if you like, yeah. with, yes, uh, financial uh, sort of mon uh, financial institutions and money on the one hand, but people and the social fabric on the other. So there's three pillars of, um, of sustainability, environment, economy, and society all come together, if you like, around real estate. Now, what's in the middle of that is, um, if you like, the G of ESG. It's the governance. Mm -hmm. And the way that we steward, manage, govern, and indeed make policy uh, around that is at the centre of all those interactions. Because in, unless it, unless real estate works in all those three corners, the environmental corner, the social corner, and the economic corner, uh, it doesn't work at all. It can't, it, it inherently cannot be sustained, cannot, is not sustainable without those working together. So the, in my view, the role of policymakers and government have to be, has to be in the middle and has to be ensuring that all those relationships carry on working. Mm. Our, our producer is telling us that we're out of time, but I kind of feel like that was a brilliant summary. 
It was brilliant. Yeah. It was brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to say that you haven't said? Or I mean, because that... Like, that sounded like a good way to finish, but is there anything else that you sort of feel like you, you want to I think to slightly distracted at the moment because my dog is going absolutely mad, rolling around <laughs> on the sofa and making very odd noises. So Sorry, yeah, my, phone, my phone rang. I switched my phone off just before and uh, switched it back on again, so apologies uh, for that. Yeah, no, no problem. These things happened a bit. Um, uh, what, uh, what else would I like to say? There is so much to say here, but I suppose it it's fundamentally that we do have to rethink real estate, the way we're thinking about it at the moment, the way we, and when I say real estate, I mean the, the totality of the built environment, yeah. the way that we've separated it out into different little specialized silos. Um, it's a bit like a huge tree with lots of leaves on it. Everybody is an absolute expert on their leaf and nobody's aware that they're actually part of the branches and the whole yeah. and there's a trunk and yeah. it goes into the ground. And I think we have to start looking, as I say, overused phrase but much more holistically at the whole thing and only when we understand what's really going on not what appears to be going on and we stop asking just one tiny little specialist silo to be the expert on the whole um then we might get somewhere with policy and everything else uh, but if you don't understand that you know bank banking practice in the us is actually having a the most major impact on you know, the way you're building in and you know, soul or wherever it, you know and as you realize that kind of global global interconnectedness the the impact of uh, of finance that the impact of business models conventions ways of looking at things even dare i say the education of people in the built environment and the way that's impacting um for, sometimes for not very good reasons uh, then you're not going to get very far into the 21st century without hitting some pretty nasty disasters. Well, one thing I'm absolutely convinced about is I don't think you're going to be a lone voice in the wilderness for much longer. I mean, I, I'm a classic <laughs> rational optimist here, and um, I think your message is incredibly clear, and uh, I just honestly wish that more people would be listening to you. So thank you. Well, very thank you very much for um, giving me the chance to. We're coming on board. As, as you said, I think we can talk about this for ages. And uh, well done, Richard. I mean, yeah. Well, thank you for educating me. So I learned a lot then. I, I'm very pleased. That was great. Thank you. Thanks again, Yolanda. You're thank very you. welcome. Thanks.